The Black Monk by Anton Chekhov, translated by Robert Edward Crozier Long, Part 1, Chapters 1 through 5. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Black Monk, Chapter 1 Andrei Vasilyevich Kovrin, Magister, had worn himself out and unsettled his nerves. He made no effort to undergo regular treatment, but only incidentally, over a bottle of wine, spoke to his friend the doctor, and his friend the doctor advised him to spend all the spring and summer in the country, and in the nick of time came a long letter from Tanya Persotsky, asking him to come and stay with her father at Borisovka. He decided to go. But first, it was in April, he travelled to his own estate, to his native Kovrinka, and spent three weeks in solitude, and only when the fine weather came, drove across the country to his former guardian and second parent, Pesotsky, the celebrated Russian horticulturist. From Kovrinka to Borisovka, the home of the Posotskys, was a distance of some seventy versts, and in the easy, springed kalesh, the drive along the roads, soft in springtime, promised real enjoyment. The house at Borisovka was large, faced with a colonnade, and adorned with figures of lions, with a plaster falling off. At the door stood a servant in livery. The old park, gloomy and severe, laid out in English fashion, stretched for nearly a vieste from the house down to the river, and ended there in a steep clay bank, covered with pines whose bare roots resembled shaggy paws. Below sparkled a deserted stream, overhead the snipe circled about with melancholy cries, all, in short, seemed to invite a visitor to sit down and write a ballad but the gardens and orchards, which together with the seed-plots occupied some eighty acres, inspired very different feelings. Even in the worst of weather they were bright and joy-inspiring. Such wonderful roses, lilies, camellias, such tulips, such a host of flowering plants of every possible kind and color, from staring white to sooty black, such a wealth of blossoms Colvern had never seen before. The spring was only beginning, and the greatest rarities were hidden under glass, but already enough bloomed in the alleys and beds to make up an empire of delicate shades, and most charming of all was it in the early hours of morning, when dewdrops glistened on every petal and leaf. In childhood the decorative part of the garden, called contemptuously by Posotsky, the rubbish, had produced on Kovrin a fabulous impression what miracles of art, what studied monstrosities, what monkeries of nature, espaliers of fruit-trees, a pear-tree shaped like a pyramidal poplar, globular oaks and lindens, apple-tree-houses, arches, monograms, candelabra, even the date 1862 in plum-trees to commemorate the year in which Pesotsky first engaged in the art of gardening. There were stately, symmetrical trees, with trunks erect as those of palms, which after examination proved to be gooseberry or currant trees. But what most of all enlivened the garden and gave it its joyous tone was the constant movement of Posotsky's gardeners. 
from early morning to late at night, by the trees, by the bushes, in the alleys, and on the beds, swarmed men as busy as ants, with barrows, spades, and watering pots. Kovrin arrived at Borisovka at nine o'clock. He found Tanya and her father in great alarm. The clear starlight night foretold frost, and the head gardener, Ivan Karlich, had gone to town so that there was no one who could be relied upon. At supper they spoke only of the impending frost, and it was decided that Tanya should not go to bed at all, but should inspect the gardens at one o'clock and see if all were in order, while Yegor Semyonovitch should rise at three o'clock or even earlier. Kovrin sat with Tanya all the evening, and after midnight accompanied her to the garden. The air already smelt strongly of burning. In the great orchard, called the Commercial, which every year brought Yegor Semyonovitch thousands of rubles profit, there already crept along the ground the thick, black, sour smoke which was to clothe the young leaves and save the plants. The trees were marshalled like chessmen in straight rows, like ranks of soldiers, and this pedantic regularity, together with the uniformity of height, made the garden seem monotonous and even tiresome. Kovrin and Tanya walked up and down the alleys, and watched the fires of dung, straw, and litter, but seldom met the workmen who wandered in the smoke like shadows. Only the cherry and plum trees and a few apple trees were in blossom, but the whole garden was shrouded in smoke, and it was only when they reached the seed-plots that Kovrin was able to breathe. I remember when I was a child sneezing from the smoke, he said, shrugging his shoulders, but to this day I cannot understand how smoke saves plants from the frost. Smoke is a good substitute when there are no clouds, answered Tanya. But what do you want the clouds for? In dull and cloudy weather we have no morning frosts. Is that so? said Kovrin. He laughed and took Tanya by the hand. Her broad, very serious, chilled face, her thick black eyebrows, the stiff collar on her jacket which prevented her from moving her head freely, her dress tucked up out of the dew, and her whole figure, erect and slight, pleased him. Heavens, how she has grown, he said to himself. When I was here last time, five years ago, you were quite a child. You were thin, long-legged, and untidy, and wore a short dress, and I used to tease you. What a change in five years! Yes, five years, sighed Tanya. A lot of things have happened since then. Tell me, André, honestly, she said, looking merrily into his face. Do you feel that you have got out of touch with us? But why do I ask? You are a man. You live your own interesting life. You... Some estrangement is natural, but... But whether that is so or not, Androsha, I want you now to look on us as your own. We have a right to that. I do already, Tanya. Your word of honor. My word of honor. You were surprised that we had so many of your photographs, but surely you know how my father adores you, worships you. You are a scholar, and not an ordinary man. You have built up a brilliant career, and he is firmly convinced that you turned out a success because he educated you. I do not interfere with his delusion. Let him believe it. Already dawn, the sky paled, and the foliage in clouds of smoke began to show themselves more clearly. The nightingale sang, and from the fields came the cry of quails. It is time for bed, said Tanya. It is cold, too. She took Kovrin by the hand. Thanks, Androsha, for coming. We are cursed with most uninteresting acquaintances, and not many even of them. With us it is always garden, 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 and nothing else. Trunks, timbers, she laughed. 
pippins, rennets, budding, pruning, grafting. All our life goes into the garden. We never even dream of anything but apples and pears. Of course, this is all very good and useful, but sometimes I cannot help wishing for change. I remember when you used to come and pay us visits, and when you came home for the holidays, how the whole house grew fresher and brighter, as if someone had taken the covers off the furniture. I was then a very little girl, but I understood. Tanya spoke for a time, and spoke with feeling. Then suddenly it came into Corvin's head that during the summer he might become attached to this little weak, talkative being, that he might get carried away, fall in love. In their position, what was more probable and natural? The thought pleased him, amused him, and as he bent down to the kind, troubled face, he hummed to himself Pushkin's couplet, Onyegin I will not conceal that I love Tatyana madly. By the time they reached the house, Yegor Semyonovitch had risen. Kovrin felt no desire to sleep. He entered into conversation with the old man and returned with him to the garden. Yegor Semyonovitch was tall, broad-shouldered, and fat. He suffered from shortness of breath, yet walked so quickly that it was difficult to keep up with him. His expression was always troubled and hurried, and he seemed to be thinking that if he were a single second late, everything would be destroyed. "'There, brother, is a mystery for you,' he began, stopping to recover his breath. "'On the surface of the ground, as you see, there is frost, but raise the thermometer a couple of yards on your stick, and it is quite warm. Why is that?' "'I confess I do not know,' said Corvin, laughing. "'No, you can't know everything. The biggest brain cannot comprehend everything. You are still engaged with your philosophy?' "'Yes, I am studying psychology and philosophy generally.' and it doesn't bore you. On the contrary, I couldn't live without it. Well, God grant, began Yegor Semyonovitch, smoothing his big whiskers thoughtfully. Well, God grant, I'm very glad for your sake, brother, very glad. Suddenly he began to listen, and making a terrible face, ran off the path and soon vanished among the trees in a cloud of smoke. Who tethered this horse to the tree? rang out a despairing voice. Which of you thieves and murderers dared to tether this horse to the apple tree? My God, my God, ruined, ruined, spoiled, destroyed. The garden is ruined. The garden is destroyed, my God. When he returned to Kovrin, his face bore an expression of injury and impotence. What on earth can you do with these accursed people? he asked in a whining voice, wringing his hands. Stiepka brought a manure cart here last night and tethered the horse to an apple tree. Tied the reins, the idiot, so tight that the bark is rubbed off in three places. What can you do with men like this? I speak to him and he blinks his eyes and looks stupid. He ought to be hanged. When at last he calmed down, he embraced Kovrin and kissed him on the cheek. Well, God grant, God grant, he stammered. I am very, very glad that you have come. I cannot say how glad. Thanks. Then, with the same anxious face, and walking with the same quick step, he went round the whole garden, showing his former ward, the orangery, the hothouses, the sheds, and two beehives, which he described as the miracle of the century. As they walked about, the sun rose, lighting up the garden. It grew hot. When he thought of the long, bright day before him, Kovrin remembered that it was but the beginning of May, and that he had before him a whole summer of long, bright, and happy days. And suddenly through him pulsed the joyous, youthful feeling which he had felt when as a child he played in this same garden, and in turn he embraced the old man and kissed him tenderly. 
touched by remembrances, the pair went into the house and drank tea out of the old china cups with cream and rich biscuits, and these trifles again reminded Kovrin of his childhood and youth. The splendid present and the awakening memories of the past mingled, and a feeling of intense happiness filled his heart. He waited until Tanya awoke, and having drunk coffee with her, walked through the garden, and then went to his room and began to work. He read attentively, making notes, and only lifted his eyes from his books when he felt that he must look out of the window or at the fresh roses, still wet with dew, which stood in vases on his table. It seemed to hint that every little vein in his body trembled and pulsated with joy. Chapter 2 but in the country Kovrin continued to live the same nervous and untranquil life as he had lived in town. He read much, wrote much, studied Italian, and when he went for walks, thought all the time of returning to work. He slept so little that he astonished the household. If by chance he slept in the daytime for half an hour, he could not sleep all the following night. Yet after these sleepless nights he felt active and gay. He talked much, drank wine, and smoked expensive cigars. Often, nearly every day, young girls from the neighboring country houses drove over to Borisovka, played the piano with Tanya, and sang. Sometimes the visitor was a young man, also a neighbor, who played the violin well. Kovrin listened eagerly to their music and singing, but was exhausted by it, so exhausted sometimes that his eyes closed involuntarily and his head drooped on his shoulder. One evening, after tea, he sat upon the balcony, reading. In the drawing-room, Tanya, a soprano, one of her friends, a contralto, and the young violinist studied the well-known serenade of Braga. Kovrin listened to the words, but though they were Russian, could not understand their meaning. At last, laying down his book and listening attentively, he understood. A girl with a disordered imagination heard by night in a garden some mysterious sounds, sounds so beautiful and strange that she was forced to recognize their harmony and holiness, which to us mortals are incomprehensible, and therefore flew back to heaven. Kovrin's eyelids drooped. He rose, and in exhaustion walked up and down the drawing-room, and then up and down the hall. When the music ceased, he took Tanya by the hand, and went out with her to the balcony. All day, since early morning, he began, my head has been taken up with a strange legend. I cannot remember whether I read it or where I heard it, but the legend is very remarkable and not very coherent. I may begin by saying that it is not very clear. A thousand years ago, a monk, robed in black, wandered in the wilderness somewhere in Syria or Arabia, some miles away the fisherman saw another black monk moving slowly over the surface of the lake. The second monk was a mirage. Now put out of your mind all the laws of optics, which legend, of course, does not recognize, and listen. From the first mirage was produced another mirage, from the second a third, so that the image of the black monk is eternally reflected from one stratum of the atmosphere to another. At one time it was seen in Africa, then in Spain, then in India, then in the far north. At last it issued from the limits of the earth's atmosphere, but never came across conditions which would cause it to disappear. Maybe it is seen today in Mars, or in the constellation of the Southern Cross. 
Now the whole point, the very essence of the legend, lies in the prediction that exactly a thousand years after the monk went into the wilderness, the mirage will again be cast into the atmosphere of the earth and show itself to the world of men. This term of a thousand years, it appears, is now expiring. According to the legend, we must expect the black monk today or tomorrow. It is a strange story, said Tanya, whom the legend did not please. But the most astonishing thing, laughed Kovrin, is that I cannot remember how this legend came into my head. Did I read it? Did I hear it? Or can it be that I dreamed of the black monk? I cannot remember. But the legend interests me. All day long, I thought of nothing else. Releasing Tanya, who returned to her visitors, he went out of the house and walked lost in thought beside the flower beds. Already the sun was setting. The freshly watered flowers exhaled a damp, irritating smell. In the house the music had again begun, and from the distance the violin produced the effect of a human voice. Straining his memory in an attempt to recall where he had heard the legend, Kovrin walked slowly across the park, and then, not noticing where he went, to the river bank. By the path which ran down among the uncovered roots to the water's edge, Kovrin descended, frightening the snipe and disturbing two ducks. On the dark pine trees glowed the rays of the setting sun, but on the surface of the river darkness had already fallen. Kovrin crossed the stream. Before him now lay a broad field covered with young rye. Neither human dwelling nor human soul was visible in the distance and it seemed that the path must lead to the unexplored, enigmatical region in the west where the sun had already set, where still vast and majestic flamed the afterglow. How open it is, how peaceful and free, thought Kovrin, walking along the path. It seems as if all the world is looking at me from a hiding place and waiting for me to comprehend it. A wave passed over the rye, and the light evening breeze blew softly on his uncovered head. Yet a minute more, and the breeze blew again, this time more strongly. The rye rustled, and from behind came the dull murmur of the pines. Kovrin stopped in amazement. On the horizon, like a cyclone or water spout, a great black pillar rose up from earth to heaven. Its outlines were undefined but from the first it might be seen that it was not standing still, but moving with inconceivable speed towards Kovrin, and the nearer it came, the smaller and smaller it grew. Involuntarily Kovrin rushed aside and made a path for it, a monk in black clothing, with grey hair and black eyebrows, crossing his hands upon his chest, was borne past. His bare feet were above the ground. Having swept some twenty yards past Kovrin, he looked at him, nodded his head, and smiled kindly, and at the same time, slyly. His face was pale and thin. When he had passed by Kovrin, he again began to grow, flew across the river, struck inaudibly against the clay bank and pine trees, and passing through them, vanished like smoke. You see, stammered Kovrin, after all, the legend was true. 
making no attempt to explain this strange phenomenon, satisfied with the fact that he had so closely and so plainly seen not only the black clothing, but even the face and eyes of the monk, agitated agreeably, he returned home. In the park and in the garden visitors were walking quietly. In the house the music continued, so he alone had seen the black monk. He felt a strong desire to tell what he had seen to Tanya and Yegor Semyonovitch, but feared that they would regard it as a hallucination, and decided to keep his counsel. He laughed loudly, sang, danced a mazurka, and felt in the best of spirits, and the guests and Tanya noticed upon his face a peculiar expression of ecstasy and inspiration, and found him very interesting. CHAPTER Three. When supper was over, and the visitors had gone, he went to his own room and lay on the sofa. He wished to think of the monk, but in a few minutes Tanya entered. There, Androsha, you can read father's articles, she said. They are splendid articles. He writes very well. Magnificent, said Yegor Samyonovich, coming in after her with a forced smile. Don't listen to her, please, or read them only if you want to go to sleep. They are splendid soporific. In my opinion, they are magnificent, said Tanya, deeply convinced. Read them, Androsha, and persuade father to write more often. He could write a whole treatise on gardening. Yegor Semyonovich laughed, blushed, and stammered out the conventional phrases used by abashed authors. At last he gave in. If you must read them, read first these papers of Gauches, and the Russian articles, he stammered, picking out the papers with trembling hands, otherwise you won't understand them. Before you read my replies, you must know what I am replying to. But it won't interest you. Stupid. And it's time for bed. Tanya went out. Yegor Semyonovich sat on the end of the sofa and sighed loudly. Ah, brother mine, he began after a long silence, as you see, my dear Magister, I write articles and exhibit at shows and get medals sometimes. Pesotsky, they say, has apples as big as your head. Pesotsky has made a fortune out of his gardens. In one word, rich and glorious is Kotchubei. But I should like to ask you, what is going to be the end of all this? The gardens, there is no question of that, are splendid. They are models. Not gardens at all, in short, but a whole institution of high political importance and a step towards a new era in Russian agriculture and Russian industry. But for what purpose, what ultimate object? That question is easily answered. I do not mean in that sense. What I want to know is... What will happen with the garden when I die? As things are, it would not last without me a single month. The secret does not lie in the fact that the garden is big and the workers many, but in the fact that I love the work, you understand? I love it perhaps more than I love myself. Just look at me. I work from morning to night. I do everything with my own hands, all grafting, all pruning, all planting. Everything is done by me. When I am helped, I feel jealous, and get irritated to the point of rudeness. The whole secret is in love, in a sharp master's eye, in a master's hand, and in the feeling when I drive over to a friend and sit down for half an hour, that I have left my heart behind me and am not myself. All the time I am in dread that something has happened to the garden. Now suppose I die tomorrow. Who will replace all this? Who will do the work? The head gardeners? The workmen? Why, the whole burden of my present worries is that my greatest enemy is not the hare or the beetle or the frost, but the hands of the stranger. 
But Tanya, said Kovrin, laughing, surely she is not more dangerous than a hare. She loves and understands the work. Yes, Tanya loves it and understands it. If after my death the garden should fall to her as mistress, then I could wish for nothing better. But suppose, which God forbid, she should marry. Yegor Semyonovitch whispered and looked at Kovrin with frightened eyes. That's the whole crux. She might marry. There would be children, and there would be no time to attend the garden. That is bad enough. But what I fear most of all is that she may marry some spendthrift, who is always in want of money, who will lease the garden to tradesmen, and the whole thing will go to the devil in the first year. In a business like this, a woman is the scourge of God. Yegor Semyonovitch sighed and was silent for a few minutes. Perhaps you may call it egoism, but I do not want Tanya to marry. I am afraid. You've seen that fop who comes along with a fiddle and makes a noise. I know Tanya would never marry him, yet I cannot bear the sight of him. In short, brother, I am a character, and I know it. Yegor Semyonovitch rose and walked excitedly up and down the room. It was plain that he had something very serious to say, but could not bring himself to the point. I love you too sincerely not to talk to you frankly, he said, thrusting his hands into his pockets. In all delicate questions, I say what I think, and dislike mystification. I tell you plainly, therefore, that you are the only man whom I should not be afraid of Tanya marrying. You are a clever man, you have a heart, and you would not see my life's work ruined. And what is more, I love you as my own son, and am proud of you. So if you and Tanya were to end in a sort of romance, I should be very glad and very happy. I tell you this straight to your face, without shame, as becomes an honest man. Yegor Semyonovitch opened the door and was leaving the room, but stopped suddenly on the threshold. And if you and Tanya had a son, I could make a horticulturist out of him, he added. But that is an idle fancy. Good night. Left alone, Kovrin settled himself comfortably and took up his host's articles. The first was entitled, Intermediate Culture. The second, a few words in reply to the remarks of Mr. Z about the treatment of the soil of a new garden. The third, more about grafting. The others were similar in scope, but all breathed restlessness and sickly irritation. Even a paper with the peaceful title of Russian Apple Trees exhaled irritability. Yegor Semyonovitch began with the words Audi alteram partem and ended it with Sapienti sat, and between these learned quotations flowed a whole torrent of acid words directed against the learned ignorance of our patent horticulturists who observe nature from their academic chairs and against Mr. Gauche whose fame is founded on the admiration of the profane and dilettante. And finally, Kovrin came across an uncalled-for and quite insincere expression of regret that it is no longer legal to flog peasants who are caught stealing fruit and injuring trees. His is good work, wholesome and fascinating, thought Kovrin, yet in these pamphlets we have nothing but bad temper and war to the knife. I suppose it is the same everywhere, in all careers, Men of ideas are nervous, and victims of this kind of exalted sensitiveness. I suppose it must be so. He thought of Tanya, so delighted with her father's articles, and then of Yegor Semyonovitch. Tanya, small, pale, and slight, with her collarbone showing, with her widely opened, her dark and clever eyes, which it seemed were always searching for something, 
and Yegor Semyonovitch, with his little hurried steps, he thought again of Tanya, fond of talking, fond of argument, and always accompanying even the most insignificant phrases with mimicry and gesticulation. Nervous, she must be nervous in the highest degree. Again, Kovrin began to read, but he understood nothing and threw down his books. The agreeable emotion with which he had danced the mazurka and listened to the music still held possession of him and aroused a multitude of thoughts. It flashed upon him that if this strange, unnatural monk had been seen by him alone, he must be ill, ill to the point of suffering from hallucinations. The thought frightened him, but not for long. He sat on the sofa and held his head in his hands, curbing the inexplicable joy which filled his whole being, and then walked up and down the room for a minute and returned to his work. But the thoughts which he read in books no longer satisfied him. He longed for something vast, infinite, astonishing. Towards morning he undressed and went unwillingly to bed. He felt that he had better rest. Then at last he heard Yegor Semyonovitch going to his work in the garden. He rang and ordered the servants to bring him some wine. He drank several glasses, his consciousness became dim, and he slept. Chapter 4 Yegor Semyonovitch and Tanya often quarreled and said disagreeable things to one another. This morning they had both been irritated, and Tanya burst out crying and went to her room, coming down neither to dinner nor to tea. At first Yegor Semyonovitch marched about, solemn and dignified, as if wishing to give everyone to understand that for him justice and order were the supreme interests of life, but he was unable to keep this up for long. His spirits fell, and he wandered about the park and sighed, Ugh, my God! At dinner he ate nothing, and at last, tortured by his conscience, he knocked softly at the closed door and called timidly, Tanya! Tanya! Through the door came a weak voice, tearful but determined. Leave me alone, I implore you. The misery of father and daughter reacted on the whole household, even on the laborers in the garden. Kovrin, as usual, was immersed in his own interesting work, but at last even he felt tired and uncomfortable. He determined to interfere and disperse the cloud before evening. He knocked at Tanya's door and was admitted. Come, come, what a shame, he began jokingly, and then looked with surprise at her tear-stained and afflicted face, covered with red spots. Is it so serious, then? Well, well, but if you knew how he tortured me, she said, and a flood of tears gushed out of her big eyes. He tormented me, she continued, wringing her hands. I never said a word to him. I only said there was no need to keep unnecessary labors if— if we can get day workmen. You know, the men have done nothing for the whole week. I, I only said this, and he roared at me, and said a lot of things, most offensive, deeply insulting, and all for nothing. Never mind, said Kovrin, straightening her hair. You have had your scoldings and your cryings, and that is surely enough. You can't keep up this forever. It is not right, all the more since you know he loves you infinitely. He has ruined my whole life, sobbed Tanya. I never hear anything but insults and affronts. He regards me as superfluous in his own house. Let him. He will have cause. I shall leave here tomorrow and study for a position as telegraphist. Let him. Come, come, stop crying, Tanya. It does you no good. You are both irritable and impulsive, and both in the wrong. Come, and I will make peace. Kovrin spoke gently and persuasively. 
but Tanya continued to cry, twitching her shoulders and wringing her hands as if she had been overtaken by a real misfortune. Coven felt all the sorrier, owing to the smallness of the cause of her sorrow. What a trifle it took to make this little creature unhappy for a whole day, or, as she had expressed it, for a whole life and as he consoled tanya it occurred to him that except this girl and her father there was not one in the world who loved him as a kinsman and had it not been for them he left fatherless and motherless in early childhood must have lived his whole life without feeling one sincere caress or tasting even that simple unreasoning love which we feel only for those akin to us by blood and he felt that his tired strained nerves like magnets responded to the nerves of this crying shuddering girl he felt too that he could never love a healthy rosy-cheeked woman but pale weak unhappy tanya appealed to him he felt pleasure in looking at her hair and her shoulders and he pressed her hand and wiped away her tears at last she ceased crying but she still continued to complain of her father and of her insufferable life at home imploring Coverin to try to realize her position then by degrees she began to smile and to sigh that god had cursed her with such a wicked temper and in the end laughed aloud called herself a fool and ran out of the room a little later Kovrin went into the garden. Yegor Semyonovitch and Tanya, as if nothing had happened, were walking side by side up the alley, eating rye bread and salt. Both were very hungry. Chapter 5 Pleased with his success as peacemaker, Kovrin went into the park. As he sat on a bench and mused, he heard the rattle of a carriage and a woman's laugh. Visitors evidently again shadows fell in the garden the sound of a violin the music of a woman's voice reached him almost inaudibly and this reminded him of the black monk whither to what country to what planet had that optical absurdity flown hardly had he called to mind the legend and painted in imagination the black apparition in the rye-field when from behind the pine-trees opposite to him walked inaudibly without the faintest rustling a man of middle height his grey head was uncovered he was dressed in black and barefooted like a beggar on his pallid corpse-like face stood out sharply a number of black spots nodding his head politely the stranger or beggar walked noiselessly to the bench and sat down and Kovrin recognized the black monk for a minute they looked at one another Kovrin with astonishment but the monk kindly and as before with a sly expression on his face but you are a mirage said Kovrin. why are you here and why do you sit in one place that is not in accordance with the legend it is all the same replied the monk softly turning his face towards Kovrin. the legend the mirage i all are products of your own excited imagination i am a phantom that is to say you don't exist asked Kovrin. think as you like replied the monk smiling faintly i exist in your imagination and as your imagination is a part of nature i must exist also in nature you have a clever a distinguished face it seems to me as if in reality you had lived more than a thousand years said Kovrin. i did not know that my imagination was capable of creating such a phenomenon why do you look at me with such rapture are you pleased with me yes for you are one of the few who can justly be named the elected of god 
You serve eternal truth. Your thoughts, your intentions, your astonishing science, all your life bear the stamp of divinity, a heavenly impress. They are dedicated to the rational and the beautiful, and that is to the eternal. You say to the eternal, then can eternal truth be accessible and necessary to men if there is no eternal life? There is eternal life, said the monk. You believe in the immortality of men. Of course, for you men, there awaits a great and a beautiful future, and the more the world has of men like you, the nearer will this future be brought. Without you, ministers to the highest principles, living freely and consciously, humanity would be nothing. Developing in the natural order, it must wait the end of its earthly history. But you, by some thousands of years, hasten it into the kingdom of eternal truth, and in this is your high service. You embody in yourself the blessing of God which rested upon the people. And what is the object of eternal life? asked Coverin. The same as all life. Enjoyment, true enjoyment, is in knowledge, and eternal life presents innumerable, inexhaustible fountains of knowledge. It is in this sense it was said, in my father's house are many mansions. You cannot conceive what a joy it is to me to listen to you, said Coverin, rubbing his hands with delight. I am glad. Yet I know that when you leave me, I shall be tormented by doubt as to your reality. You are a phantom, a hallucination. But that means that I am psychically diseased, that I am not in a normal state. What if you are? That need not worry you. You are ill because you have overstrained your powers, because you have borne your health in sacrifice to one idea, and the time is near when you will sacrifice not merely it, but your life also. What more could you desire? It is what all gifted and noble natures aspire to. But if I am psychically diseased, how can I trust myself? And how do you know that the men of genius, whom all the world trusts, have not also seen visions? Genius, they tell you now, is akin to insanity. Believe me, the healthy and the normal are but ordinary men, the herd. Fears as to a nervous age, over-exhaustion, and degeneration can trouble seriously only those whose aims in life lie in the present. That is the herd. The Romans had as their ideal mens sana in corpore sano. All that the Greeks and Romans said is not true. Exaltations, aspirations, excitements, ecstasies, all those things which distinguish poets, prophets, martyrs to ideas from ordinary men are incompatible with the animal life, that is, with physical health. I repeat, if you wish to be healthy and normal, go with the herd. How strange that you should repeat what I myself have so often thought, said Coverin. It seems as if you had watched me and listened to my secret thoughts. But do not talk about me. What do you imply by the words eternal truth? The monk made no answer. Coverin looked at him, but could not make out his face. His features clouded and melted away. His head and arms disappeared. His body faded into the bench and into the twilight and vanished utterly. The hallucination is gone, said Coverin, laughing. It is a pity. 
He returned to the house lively and happy. What the black monk had said to him flattered not his self-love, but his soul, his whole being, to be the elected, to minister to eternal truth, to stand in the ranks of those who hasten by thousands of years the making mankind worthy of the kingdom of Christ, to deliver humanity from thousands of years of struggle, sin, and suffering, to give to one idea everything, youth, strength, health to die for the general welfare what an exalted what a glorious ideal and when through his memory flowed his past life a life pure and chaste and full of labour when he remembered what he had learnt and what he had taught he concluded that in the words of the monk there was no exaggeration through the park to meet him came tanya she was wearing a different dress from that in which he had last seen her you here she cried we were looking for you looking but what has happened she asked in surprise looking into his glowing enraptured face and into his eyes now full of tears how strange you are andrusha i am satisfied tanya said kovrin laying his hand upon her shoulder i am more than satisfied i am happy tanya dear tanya you are inexpressibly dear to me tanya i am so glad he kissed both her hands warmly and continued i have just lived through the brightest most wonderful most unearthly moments but i cannot tell you all for you would call me mad or refuse to believe me let me speak of you tanya i love you and have long loved you to have you near me to meet you ten times a day has become a necessity for me i do not know how i shall live without you when i go home no laughed tanya you will forget us all in two days we are little people and you are a great man let us talk seriously said he i will take you with me tanya yes you will come you will be mine tanya cried what and tried to laugh again but the laugh did not come and instead red spots stood out on her cheeks she breathed quickly and walked on rapidly into the park i did not think i never thought of this never thought she said pressing her hands together as if in despair but kovrin hastened after her and with the same glowing enraptured face continued to speak i wish for love which will take possession of me altogether and this love only you tanya can give me i am happy how happy she was overcome bent withered up and seemed suddenly to have aged ten years but kovrin found her beautiful and loudly expressed his ecstasy how lovely she is end of part one of the black monk by anton chekhov